The best way to understand the, the book of Malachi is to understand the nature of covenant uh, or the doctrine uh, of the covenant. It is mentioned several times in the prophecy of Malachi. And if we fail to understand what this doctrine of the covenant is, we will fail to understand some of the, the nuances of what is being said here. So what does a covenant, what does this covenant mean? What does it consist of? You know the story of, of Israel begins, uh, well begins, or the history of Israel begins at creation of course, but it uh, particularly begins as well in, in the story of Abraham, in the, in, the, in the situation where God came to deal with Abraham, Abram and took him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees and made a covenant with him. It is mentioned in Genesis 12 and it is ratified in Genesis 17. For his part, God said he committed himself to bless Abram, to bless all of his descendants forever, that God would protect, that God would bless. He promised to give them a land, to make them a kingdom. He promised that he, all of uh, uh, or the, the descendancy of Abram, the seed of, of Abraham, would bless, would be the channel of God's blessing upon the whole of, of, of the world. But there were conditions, so often is the case with covenants. There is a, a, another side to the, to the coin. Abraham and, the, and his descendants had to fulfill some some conditions. They, they had to obey God. Later on in the, in the times of, in the days of Moses, the, the content of that God's law was uh, installed in the Ten Commandments and all the lo other laws related to the, to the civil uh, administration of Israel and, uh, and the ceremonies of, uh, of worship of the nation. And the point is that the, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, had to obey God's law wholeheartedly. And this dynamic is found throughout the whole of the Old Testament. You find this dynamic at work very clearly. When God's people disobey, God visits them with, with, with the sword, with punishment. When the people of God repent and turn from their wicked ways. God removes his punishment and blesses them. Both spiritually and materially. There are many examples of this dynamic in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole history of Israel could be traced in, in, in terms of uh, peaks and, and valleys to do with their obedience. Whenever they obeyed, blessings uh, occurred. Whenever they disobeyed, they were under the curse. But the most critical example of, of this kind of cursing uh, is when God's people were taken captive just before Malachi's day into Babylon. We find it said in Deuteronomy 28 that if the people disobeyed, the land would be taken away from them. Curses or punishments were what they should expect 
if they disobeyed God's law. It's often been called the sword of the covenant. Every time the people disobeyed, broke the covenant, every time the people turned from God to other gods, every time they, they disobeyed the precepts and commandments of God, God drew his covenant sword and came after them. This dynamic was always present. You obey, you have blessings. You disobey, you have curses. The point being made in the Old Testament is that God wants obedience. That God desires the obedience of his people. How does obedience impact our worship? Is our worship in any way related to our obedience? And I'm not going to draw the parallels here because, uh, uh, for the sake of time. But love is very much related to worship. We all see that. You worship what you love. Or you cannot worship something that, or someone that you don't love. Our Lord himself said in his farewell address to the disciples, in it, just before he, he went to, to, to the cross, he said to the disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. So obedience is very much related to love, very much related to worship. And this is relevant because in our day, many people believe that worship is completely uh, separate from obedience. That you can render worship to God and, and live a life of faith, whatever that means, without obedience. You can live a life of total and utter disobedience to God, but still call yourself a Christian. Still say that you have faith in God. That you worship God. Well, the first thing I want, want us to see is that God does not change. The way he deals with his people may change from a season in certain seasons. But he has an unchanging nature. Verse 6 says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And I want to point two things here. One about God and one about the people. The first about God. God does not change. God has not changed in, in Malachi's day. He is God. By nature of his own, or by, by the virtue of his own nature, he cannot change. He's outside of time and space. He is constant. He is constant in his purposes. So the purposes he had in Abram's day, when he first made a covenant with Abram, are still the same. He still purposes to bless the world through the seed of Abram. But he's also constant in his commands. His standards, his precepts, his holy character has not changed. And this is in itself a rebuke. It's as if God is saying to the people, I have not moved an inch. I am still where I was. You're the ones who have abandoned me. You're the ones who moved away. But God is also constant in his goodness. His love for the pe or to the people 
is once again here demonstrated by the fact that he's being forbearing with them, that he's being patient with the people. That he's just the, the fact that God is still speaking to them is, is proof that he is good and in in constant in his good desires for the people. He says to them, return to me and I will return to you. Repent and you will find forgiveness. But I want us to note as well a second thing here about the people that is said in verse 6. He says that because God does not change, they are not consumed. He calls them the sons of Jacob. And this is hardly a compliment. Jacob was not someone who was known for being a, 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 an example of morality and of honesty. His name, Jacob, means to be a supplanter, to be a deceiver, to be one who seizes or circumvents or usurps something. So what we are being told in verse 6 and with verse 7 in mind as well, is that well, on the one hand, God does not change, and fundamentally the people have not changed as well. They are still sons of Jacob. They are still fundamentally the same. They are still just like their fathers. God complains about the people. God tells them, you have broken the covenant. You have gone away from my ordinances. You have not kept them. And he offers them the most gracious of invitations. Return to me. Repent. Return to me. And I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. Isn't that the story of Israel? As you read through Genesis, through to Exodus, and then uh, you get to Joshua, Judges, to Kings, and to the prophets, it's, it's, it's sadly the, real, the reality. They have always been a stiff-necked, uh, disobedient people. More times than not, they have been under the curse of God. Under the judgment of God. Since the days of your fathers. Since the days of the patriarchs. Since the beginning you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. In other words, the message that the prophet Malachi is saying to the people. Whether on the streets of Jerusalem or in the temple courts. He's saying you're just like your fathers. You have learned nothing. You have always disobeyed the Lord. You have always failed to keep the covenant. That's why you're going through such difficult times. That's why your crops are not producing any yield. That's why you're so distressed, uh, financially distressed. That's why you lack rain. That's why you're not prospering. That's why plagues of locusts are consuming and devouring your fields. And the appeal is exactly in the same terms as the, uh, is in the, a covenant appeal. Return to me, repent, and I will return to you. So what do the people say? And here we have another proof of the, how cynical they had become. In what way shall we return, they ask. As if mocking the words of the prophet. As if mocking God himself. What is God talking about? What, what, what are you talking about that God wants us to return? 
Where? What does he want us to return? We are in the land. We're, we're perfectly fine here. It's, it's as if they're mocking. What do we need to repent of? What are we sinning against the Lord for? What are we doing wrong? Yet again, we see some, uh, this rebellious nature of the people, just like their fathers. You would suppose that, uh, that upon hearing God saying that you're sinning, return to me and I will return to you. You would suppose that someone or anyone who has a heart for the Lord would go, I better pay attention to this. I better look, take a very long look at this situation and not treat it lightly. I better treat this as a matter of primary concern, of priority in my life. But they are unwilling to listen. What a gracious invitation they are receiving and what a pitiful reply they give. They find it in the front that the prophet, that Malachi, that God is telling them that they should return. This, this prophet is coming and saying that I'm wrong, that I need to repent, that I need to change. I don't want to, to, to repent, to change. It reminds me of many situations in the Old Testament and in the New, in the New Testament. Jesus, uh, the man of God, by, by uh, the, the, the fulfillment of what it means to be the man of God, comes to the world, comes into Jerusalem, comes into Jerusalem. And what do the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people of the day do? They mock him. They scoff at him. They don't need to be told that they need to change. They're perfectly fine. It's the other people that need to change. It's those outside that need to, need to change. It's those tax collectors that need to change. Ah, we're perfectly fine. We have all of these ceremonies. Look at us. We, we follow all of these rules. Reminds me of that situation of, of the people of God in Israel with, uh, uh, that is recorded for us in, in 1 Samuel. The people are going into war and they're facing the enemy at battle and they f suffer a humiliating defeat at Shiloh. And instead of considering their ways, instead of uh, looking at the situation and realizing that God has removed his, his covenant blessing and they are under some kind of curse because they were just defeated, brutally defeated in battle, instead of acknowledging their sin, instead of looking at their situation, they just call, oh, oh bring the ark into, the, into battle. Go and fetch, call the Levites, tell them to bring the ark into battle. No acknowledgement of sin, no cries for mercy, no repentance, only a superstitious outward misplaced faith. Just like the people in Malachi's day, their religion had become one that lacked substance and was only outward in form. If only we keep to these external things, like the scribes and Pharisees, we're all good. We know, you are under, we know we are under a curse. We know something is wrong. But hey, at least we still have the ark here with us. At least we still have our outward ceremonies. Even though our hearts are not really toward God and we don't want to listen to him and when he speaks to us. Hey, at least we still have all these external superstitious things. 
We all know what happened in Shiloh. We all know it, what happened in 1 Samuel, that is. We all know what happened in Malachi's day. We all know what happened to the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. Brethren, there is a serious question for us to, 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 come, to, to come to terms with. Is our religion just mere outward superstitious religion? Are we really looking forward to hear God talk to us, speak to us, point to us the sin that we have? Or are we unwilling to, to have that sin pointed out? Not my brother's sin, not my sister's sin, not the sin of the world outside. Or is something that you desire that God would come and say, this is your sin, particularly, personally. Is it our desire that God would come and expose the hidden evils of our heart? Or are we just like the people in Malachi's day? God comes, speaks with us, and we go, oh, I don't need to change. I don't need to change. I'm perfectly fine. So-and-so needs to change. The world needs to change, but I'm perfectly fine. You know the, the, the writer of Robertson Crusoe, um, Daniel Defoe, in, a, in, his, in, in Robertson Crusoe, he, he makes a very perceptive comment about repentance. He says that, I have since often observed how incongruous and irrational the common temper of, mankind's, of mankind is, that they are not ashamed to sin, and yet they are ashamed to repent. They are not ashamed of the action for which they ought justly to be esteemed fools, but are ashamed of the returning, which only can make them is to be esteemed as wise men. It's pride. Are we prideful? Are we so prideful that we think we've arrived at perfection? Something that even the Apostle Paul said, no, I haven't reached it yet, that he was still pressing on. Perhaps you have heard that uh, inflexible man's prayer. It's, it's a prayer that goes something like this. O Lord, grant that we may always be right. For thou knowest we will never change our minds. It sounds humorous. But so often our attitudes, the way we behave when God is speaking, is so much like this prayer. We might not say it, but we behave. In war, uh, we might not say it in word, but we, we, in our deeds and actions, we behave in such a way that we adopt the attitudes of such a prayer. May we never wrong. May, you never, uh, may we always be right. Repentance is never an easy thing. Rarely is it an easy thing. Especially when we are proud. Malachi's, the people in Malachi's day, they were exceedingly proud. Even though they had nothing to be proud of. In what way shall we return? And you think, oh, I would never do something like that. Is that so? God goes on to show them. God goes on to show them how they have been wronging God. First we see a robbery. Will man rob God? Can a man rob God? It might seem ridiculous and impossible. 
How can a creature steal from God? He owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything that you think you have in your possession is his. Your house, your money in, the, in your bank accounts, your car, your clothes. Everything is his. Just by, the, by virtue of the fact that he is God. And that this is his world. How can you rob God? Again, here, if we think in terms of the covenant, we can see how man can steal from God. He took, God uses the example, and I truly believe that this is a, 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 meant to be just an example of many other things that they were doing wrong. He uses the example of tithes and offerings. They were told that they were to set apart 10% and give it to God. That these tithes were to be brought into worship. And Malachi uses this example, or God uses Malachi to bring this example to call the people to repentance. They have been stealing God. They haven't been bringing the, 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 the 10%. They haven't been bringing the thank offerings. And God says to them, you are cursed with a curse. And here, uh, the, the Hebrew original it's much more emphatic than this. What, what is being said, you are cursed with the curse. And I think Malachi, God, is speaking of the curse of Deuteronomy 28. You are cursed with the curse of Deuteronomy 28. The sword of the covenant is upon you. Why? Because you're breaking the covenant. You're being disobedient. You're being rebellious. And I'm gonna, not going to dwell too much in, in this point now but let me just say this as a point of application very practical our Lord uh, sometimes it's argued that uh, tithes are not uh, for, for the New Testament that tithes are uh, an old covenant thing that we are no longer under the law I would say to that that yes although Tides were very much a part of the Old Testament law. In Abraham, we see Abraham tithing before the law, before the Mosaic law was instituted. He did it so willingly because he was revealed the gospel. But even, even, if you think that the tithes and offerings were only meant uh, to, the, to the Old Testament uh, believers, they're no longer uh, prescriptive to us in the New Testament. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus. He said that our righteousness should exceed that of the, of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were fastidious religionists. They were red-hot tithers. We are to have a righteousness that exceeds those of the scribes and Pharisees. But what the point I want to make here is one that goes beyond money. Perhaps money is not the biggest commodity that we have nowadays. For some people, money is a, a secondary thing. For some, it is all their lives. But for, for some, it is a sort of secondary thing. 
for the Jews living in an agricultural society, very slow-moving society, very slow and peaceful, giving the 10% of the crops was um, their tithe. But what about in our society? We're no longer an agricultural society. We live in a, a modern age, in the modern age. Life is no longer slow and peaceful. We live in a world that seems to be traveling a million miles an hour. You go to bed one day thinking that, that, that the situation in Ukraine has been uh, sort of reached a stalemate uh, after Putin uh, declared a few regions to be uh, independent um, in Ukraine. And you think, okay, that's it. Uh, it's going to go into a stalemate. And you wake up the next morning and you realize that they've invaded the, the, the country. All in a span of a few hours, things change so quickly. I would argue that very often the most precious commodity that we have in a such a fast-paced society is time. Time. Time that should be given to God. How is it that you give your time to God? Are you robbing God with your time? I say, oh, yes. Are you giving a tithe of your time? Are you giving an offering of your time? Are you being sacrificial in giving your time to God? Spending time in prayer. Spending time with the people of God. Spending time with edifying one another. Are you robbing God of your time? The time that he has given you. Perhaps even more than time, concentration, focus. Our jobs are very demanding nowadays. Not like the, 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 the jobs in... I don't want to be unfair to the, to, the, to, the, to the ancient people, to an ancient people. But our jobs are so much more taxing nowadays. You, they were much more relaxed. They had... They, they, uh, they had uh, time to carefully think about things and as society progresses into this age that we are in it's like everything is so mentally taxing everything requires so much effort so much careful thought and even when we have some time some concentration left some mental aptitude left we go on and spend it in our hobbies Sometimes, maybe it's a musical instrument, maybe it's a, a craft or something. We go and expend our mental energy and our concentration uh, in the things of this world. And we only dedicate the, the leftovers of our energy and concentration to God. Is it that we are robbing, robbing God of our concentration? Our focus, we're distracted, so easily distracted, because our minds are so uh, exhausted because of the, the previous week. Even in the worship services, in the sermons, 
you're supposed to be paying attention to the sermon and your mind is racing everywhere and not anywhere. And that's not surprising because your mind is already so shot from the, the, the whole of the week. You spent the, the, the whole of the previous day, the, the, the Saturday, doing all kinds of things that you're tired. Is that not robbing God? So, so much to say here, still. God says, take a test. That's what God says. And I'm going to put this or summarize this a little bit. What I have here to say. God says, prove me. Put me to the test. Very rarely you see God saying this. Very rarely in, in scripture you see God saying, put me to the test. Test me. Test me. Bring all the, he says, as the example goes, he says to the, to the people of God in Malachi, they bring all the, the whole of the offerings. Bring the whole of the tithes. I, I suspect that what was happening here was that they were uh, giving just part of the tithes. They were, they were not giving it the whole thing. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. They sold the property. They took half of the value. Although they weren't even obligated to give that half. But they chose to lie. But God says, put me to the test. Give me what is mine. Stop robbing me. And I will show you the kinds of blessings that, you are in, that are, you're not even able to comprehend. I will shower you with blessings that there will be no room enough to receive it. He will open the windows of heaven. He will rebuke the, the devourer. The devourer was the, a plague of locusts or would be uh, there's certainly a figurative language here, but the devourers, uh, the devourer would be locusts, big locusts that would go through the, uh, still go through the fields in the Middle East and uh, destroy the fruit of your ground. The vine failed, will, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit. You will be blessed. God makes, calls you to prove Him, and there's many times of proving. Sometimes proving and testing God is sinful. Oftentimes, most of the times, it's sinful. But sometimes, God calls us to prove him. Psalm 18.30 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. Prove his word. Test his word. Let me draw some points of application as we close quickly. First point is that obedience is fundamental. There is no life of faith without obedience. That's what James says. It's not me saying it. It's not me denying the doctrine of justification uh, by grace alone through faith alone. Works do not justify us. Or as Martin Luther said, we're saved by faith alone. But that faith is never alone. Because if we trust, we will obey. What is that song that gets sung in the... In the in the Sunday school, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in, Je in Jesus but to trust and obey, right? A faith without works is dead. 
That's scripture. And if your theology and if your understanding of, of salvation does not allow you uh, to say that, you have a wrong understanding of salvation. And that's the point. If you are to worship God, you are to worship Him not only with words but with actions. Secondly, and I'm not going to dwell on this one much, we learn that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings a, a curse. God has not changed. He is still the same. And yes, ultimately, our blessing comes from the obedience that is not ours. And I'm talking to Christians here. Our obedience, our salvation, and the true form or the truest blessing comes through the obedience of another, through Christ's righteousness. But I do wonder when we find ourselves sowing much and reaping very little, when we find ourselves. Uh, not receiving the, the blessings that we would expect. I wonder if that is because we have still not grasped something. That there is still a way for us to return before we would enjoy blessing. I wonder if God is telling us the same thing that he has told Malachi. Repent, return to me and I will return to you. And I will open up the heavens that you will have no room to contain all the blessing. I wonder. I'm not a prophet. And I won't apply it that way. But I wonder. Thirdly and lastly. Let's realize something about the, the testing here. Or the obedience here. That is. To be obedient to God. And please Try and follow this, because I think this is important for us. To be obedient to God is a risky business in the eyes of the world. God was telling the, the Israelites to do something that no person in their right mind would do. They were already struggling financially. They were already at their wit's end, as they say. And God is saying, I want you to risk. It's about faith, isn't it? Obedience. Will you trust me? Will you obey me? Will you give all the tithes? Will you really sacrifice? I'm sure they had all kinds of lingering doubts. And ultimately those lingering doubts prevailed, I, I believe. At least for the, for the great majority in, the, in that day. But how we, will we experience God's blessing? How will we ex have that experience of truly God was with us? Truly the Lord undertook. Truly the Lord uh, uh, kept his word. If we never put ourselves in a situation that God n must come in and, and keep his word. If we're always playing so it's so safe and so secure that 
God will never have a situ- uh, an opportunity to keep his word. Because we're not trusting him, we're trusting ourselves, our ingenuity, we're trusting our, our uh, foresight. How is it that our Christian lives, let me put it this way, being a Christian should mean to be radical. Christianity is and was always, or should always be, about being radical. Not radical in the sense that you go to, the, to, the, to, to do radical and, and things like whatever young people do nowadays but radical in the sense that we are to live a life that is risk-taking. That's where the word radical in the, in the sense of those uh, radical sports comes from. It's those dangerous sports. They're radical. You're putting your life on the line. You're risking it all. Uh, for How is it that our lives as Christians is radical? Our lifestyle as Christians involves no risks, no, it involves no faith in God, ultimately. If our life uh, as Christians is virtually indistinguishable from the respectable man in the world, uh, we just add the fact that we go to some worship services on the Sunday, but our life is basically just living like any other respectable man who is not a Christian or woman that is not a Christian. If our life is kind of like that, is that living the Christian life? You're just basically living a respectable life and tacking on the, the cherry on top of going to worship services. I would suggest that the Christian life is not about that kind of respectability. It will come. And in many ways, the respectability that the world sees nowadays as being a respectable thing is influenced by Christians or by the Christian thought. Is our life indistinguishable? Is that why the floodgates of heaven have remained firmly closed? That churches remain powerless? I wonder. How can you see the blessing of God, finally? How can we see the cause of Christ making headway if we are asking such questions? If we are asking, uh, why should I do this? Well, which way shall we return? And why have we been robbing God? I don't think the floodgates were open in Malachi's day. Well, I know historically they were not opened in Malachi's day. But they were open 400 and something years later as some risk-taking, wholehearted, obedient believers of God gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem on the Pentecost day and they were praying and they were praying on that Pentecost day and the greatest of all blessings was poured out from heaven that day the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven and flooded into that room and from that room it flooded into the whole world 
And we are fruit, brothers and sisters. We are the fruit of that flooding. But he continues, even to this very day, to bring an, an abundant harvest to God. God still desires that abundant outpouring that happened in Pentecost to continue to happen in our day as we bring more harvest into the kingdom. Let us trust. Let us be obedient. Let us have true faith in God. And let us be assured that God never leaves true faith unchanged.